You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I mentioned last Sunday that we were um, in the process of creating banners that reflect three verses that our leadership team has chosen to associate with those three parts of the mission statement. And there they are hanging on the wall um, beautifully. Thank you, Cyril, for designing those for us and uh, to the many uh, volunteers that we had yesterday afternoon to hang them. Um, They just look so good. Uh, Last Sunday, we looked at the first one. We are the awed by God, this wonderful verse from Job 26, verse 14. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, How small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Um, It was reminding us, that verse reminds us that what we know about God through Christ, as glorious as it is, is only a whisper of who God truly is. And for the ages to come, for an eternity for us to experience in God's presence in heaven, um, we will continue to mind the depths of God's riches of kindness that he has shown to us in Christ Jesus. Today we look at the second part of the mission statement. We are, this is the letter R in in the we are, we are revealing Christ. This part of the mission statement reminds us that as we are awed by God, we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. Christ is revealed in us as we behold his glory ultimately on the cross. Now, the theological word for this is if you've grown up in a Christian home or, or uh, gone through catechism or have some degree of theological training, the theological word for this is sanctification. Sanctification. Now, sanctification is the process of growing in holiness. It's the gradual progress in our lives of becoming more and more righteous, more and more godly, more and more like Jesus. Sanctification is what the Christian hopes for, prays for, and works for so that our lives would more and more reflect the glory of God. Now, sanctification must not be confused with justification. They're two different things. They sound similar, but they are very different. Sanctification is a process. Justification is not. Justification is a one-time event that happens when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead as the king of heaven and earth. And when you do that, God declares you to be righteous once for all. Now, some of you were here three weeks ago when our regional leader, Pastor Ken Mellinger, was here. You remember he preached a sermon called The Gospel in Three Words. The Gospel in Three Words. And as he borrowed from um, the classic book Knowing God by J.I. Packer, he he tried to summarize the gospel in the three words adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. Now that was a sermon, it was a rich sermon about many things, but essentially it was a sermon about justification. It was a sermon about justification. It was about what God had done once for all in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to satisfy his wrath against us and to declare us righteous before him. Now, sanctification is different. 
And uh, I want to try to help you understand the differences between justification and sanctification before we kind of get into our verse uh, that relates to we are revealing Christ. In his very helpful um, systematic theology, theologian Wayne Grudem sets out the differences between justification and sanctification in the following chart. Okay, it's a little hard to see, um, but uh, uh, I'll walk, it through, uh, walk through it with you. The first line there, it says, justification is your legal standing. You know, I, I used to practice as a defense lawyer um, when I would defend someone, um, we would go through trial, and at the end of the trial, the judge would pronounce a, a verdict. You are either guilty or you are not guilty. And uh, when the judge pronounces you not guilty, it doesn't really matter if the person is actually guilty. Their legal standing before our society is one of being not guilty. It is a legal standing. That is what our justification is. It is God declaring us to be righteous even though we are not actually righteous in the way that we live. Sanctification is different. Sanctification is about our internal condition of righteousness. It is separate and apart from the legal standing that we have received uh, by grace. Justification is also once for all time. It just happens once. once you, the moment that you put your faith in Christ and you are born again by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you are declared righteous. You are justified by faith in Christ. Sanctification, on the other hand, is continuous. It is not a one-time event. We never go through just one experience of sanctification. It is continuous throughout life. The third difference there is justification is entirely God's work. God is the one who justifies us. He sent his son and he gave us the gift of faith to respond to the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Sanctification is a a hybrid of God's work and our work. Yes, God's work is empowering our work, but we we need to cooperate. No one is going to be sanctified by sitting and doing nothing. Uh, We are sanctified as we work towards holiness by the grace that God supplies. Fourth difference, justification is perfect in this life. It's perfect in this life. You cannot improve upon it. You do not grow in justification. It is done once for all, definitively and perfectly. Sanctification, on the other hand, is never perfect in this life. None of us will ever reach the standard of perfect righteousness when we are living without sin. Last difference. Justification is the same in all Christians. If you're a Christian here today, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are justified to the same degree as anyone else in this room. There, is, there are no degrees of justification between different Christians. It's the same in all. All of us are declared righteous by God through Christ. Sanctification, on the other hand, can be greater in some than others. We can have varying degrees of sanctification among us. And that does not affect or change or impact our degree of justification. Now, that all sounds very theological, doesn't it? But when you you think about it, this chart really provides a master class in pastoral application, in shaping our theology and how we live, in caring for those who are struggling. Let me just give you a few examples because I want you to see why these two concepts 
are so important and why it is so important for us to understand their distinctions. When someone says, you may have heard someone say this before, well, I don't have to work at the Christian life because God has already done everything for me. I've heard that before. When I was in first year law school, I was going to a church where the pastor was trying to exhort his people to, um, to, to, to devote themselves to the reading of the word and to prayer and to, to, to fighting for their sanctification, for putting all their energy and attention that they could by, by the grace of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, but, but working towards growing in holiness. And the response of his congregation was, well, that's legalism. You know, hasn't God done everything for us already? All we do is rest in what God has done. Well, what's happening there is justification is being confused with sanctification. They're being confused. Yes, God has done everything for us in our justification, but our sanctification is not yet complete, and God has called us to exert our energy and attention and resources into growing in holiness by the grace that he supplies. Well, let me give you another example. Some people might say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus has died for my sins, um, and now I can live however I want to. It doesn't matter how I live because God has declared me to be righteous. I don't actually need to be righteous um, because God has done it all. Well, what's happening there is, is that person is taking justification without the sanctification, and the two have to go together. They, they, the sanctification flows out of justification as a necessary fruit of that justification. You think about what Jesus says about the healthy trees and the sick trees. He says, you will know them by their fruits. The healthy trees will bear good fruit. The sick trees will bear bad fruit. That's justification and sanctification in picture language. Healthy trees are made healthy by our justification. And our sanctification is the process of letting the, the, that, that health that God has given us play out in the bearing of good fruit. Let me give you one more example. You know, some people say, particularly those who have a very sensitive conscience, they say, well, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian because I'm just not as godly as everyone else that I know. And I wonder if you've ever had a thought like that before where it seems like you're always lagging behind spiritually behind your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you, when you look at how people are progressing and how many flaws remain in your life, you start doubting whether God has truly forgiven you. You start questioning whether you are truly united to Christ, whether uh, your sins are truly forgiven. Well, that again, my friends, is confusing justification with sanctification, it may be a reality that you are less righteous, less sanctified than your brothers and sisters, but that does not in any way affect your justification. Justification is the same in all. Sanctification is different from Christian to Christian. Your justification is perfect. Your sanctification may change. Your justification will not now, it's crucial that we have a biblical understanding of sanctification, of what it is and what it is not. Because we want to be fully committed to pursuing sanctification, that's what we are revealing Christ means. It's that, that's our statement that we take 
personal holiness, growth and righteousness seriously in our church. But we wanna make it absolutely clear that we are not saying that we are saved by our works, we are not defined by our works. God has saved us definitively, absolutely by his initiative, by sending Jesus to die for our sins, to justify us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So today's sermon is about sanctification, and I want to make it clear what we are talking about and what we are not talking about. Pastor Ken was talking about justification, and just as he summarized his uh, gospel message in three words, I'm going to try to summarize this message in three words as well. Uh, And those three words are this, transformation through revelation. Transformation through revelation. Sanctification happens through transformation that comes through the revelation of who Christ is and what he has done. And no verse captures this reality better than 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. They're on the wall. It says this, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open um, your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter three. We're gonna be looking not only at that verse, but at the context. If you don't have a Bible, the verse here is printed in your bulletin and any other verses that are referenced will be put up on the PowerPoint. Let's, uh, Let's take some time to study this verse and try to understand what it teaches about how sanctification happens so that we would increasingly become a church that is revealing Christ. We're gonna break down our sermon today into two sections. Uh, First, transformation, and then second, revelation. Transformation through revelation. First, transformation. Now notice that in the middle of the verse, in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter three, verse 18, it uh, it says this, being transformed being transformed. I don't usually talk about Greek words because I have never received uh, language training, Um, but as I study the commentaries and my lexicon, uh, it says that the Greek word here is metamorpho. And I bring that up to you because of its similarity to another word that we have in English that's very similar, metamorphosis. It's the transformation uh, that is so radical that happens in a being that they become something that they weren't previously. Now this word metamorpho has two meanings. On the one hand, it means to change in a manner visible to others, to change in a manner that's visible to others. We see that when a caterpillar metamorphosizes into a butterfly. But it's also the the, the word that's used on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. You remember what happens there? Jesus ascends the mount with three of his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, and there he is transfigured. His his appearance changes from one of a plain, ordinary Jewish man in kind of first century Middle East to to one who is wearing robes that are white as snow, and his face is shining like the sun. The word there, transfigured, is the word metamorpho. He is transformed before them. He is changed in a manner that is visible to others. The word can also mean to change inwardly, to change inwardly in fundamental character or condition. 
Uh, the word doesn't just mean external change, it means internal change. Now this clearly wasn't the case when Jesus was transfigured because he had no need to be changed on the inside. He always was fully God and fully man. His transfiguration didn't change who he was. It merely revealed who he he was. But for the rest of us, it means a changing of our innermost being because our innermost being is stained by sin and we are in need of internal transformation. We need to be changed on the inside before others can see the change on the outside. And that is what sanctification is all about. It's about being changed on the inside out so that people can see the difference that's happening deep in our souls. This is what Paul's talking about in verse 18. Now notice the tense. Again, we're getting a little bit into grammar, but this is important. Notice the tense of the words being transformed. And notice it it doesn't say we were transformed or we have been transformed as if it were something that happened in the past as a one-time event. It is written in the present tense, something that, that, that continues on and on rather than something that just happens once in your life. Transformation is a process that continues throughout the Christian life. Now this means that if you're not being spiritually transformed, if you have been going through a extended season of spiritual stagnation, then you're missing out on what it truly means to live as a Christian. Now, there are times in each of our lives when we may feel that we're not growing and we can't see a tangible sign of God's, uh, uh, God's work in our lives. That's, that's normal because sometimes it's just a matter of the seeds that God is planting in our hearts. It's just a matter of giving those seeds a little bit more time to spread up and grow. And sometimes it's just a matter of we, we don't see the change, but, but others see it. You know, we can be the hardest critics of ourselves, particularly those who are self-reflective, those who are introverts. You don't see how you are growing, but others say, you know, I, I see the Lord working in your life in this way and that way. Sometimes it's just a matter of trusting others more than we trust our own judgment. It is fairly normal for the Christian to go through seasons of wondering how God is at work in our lives. But what is not normal is when neither you nor the people around you, the people who know you best, can see any signs of growth over an extended period of time. I wonder if you've met people who look back at the early days of their Christian life and say, oh, those were the good old days. You know, I started off on fire for the Lord. I had this zeal to serve the Lord. I was growing in the knowledge and love of the Lord, but then, oh, it was hard. You know, life wore me down. You know, people disappointed me. Churches and pastors failed me. And now I'm, I'm not thinking about thriving I'm just thinking about surviving. Well, my friends, that's not what the Christian life is meant to look like. We're not meant to start on a spiritual high and then resign ourselves to a slow and inevitable descent into spiritual cynicism. We're meant to experience a lifetime of being transformed, a lifetime of sanctification, a lifetime of changing in our innermost being in such a way that others can look at our lives and say, 
that person is being transformed, changing in radically different ways. Now, there will be disappointments. You know, this isn't trying to sugarcoat life to say that everything's gonna be easy. And, you know, that, that steady progress of sanctification is gonna be without trial and without disappointment. No, that's not true. And our lives are full of disappointment. People will fail us and we will fail people. And life is gonna go sideways at times and there will be times when it becomes really hard to love God, to trust God, to worship God, to follow God. It becomes even harder to love people. But the beauty of the Christian life is that the Bible teaches that these are precisely the sorts of trials and experiences that God ordains in our lives to deepen our relationship with him. You know, sanctification doesn't happen despite our sufferings. Sanctification happens because of our sufferings. It is through our suffering that God does his most powerful work in shaping us into Christ-likeness. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter five, verse four, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Suffering is often the means of our sanctification. It is the tool that God wields in our lives to shape us into people who are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And that is what we are being transformed into. Christ is the gold standard of our sanctification. We see that later in verse 18. It says, you know, we are being transformed into the same image. This is the language that Paul uses in the verse. The same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, when we read the word image in the Bible, our minds are are meant to go back to Genesis chapter one, where we are taught that uh, men and women, male and female, are made in the image of God. But sometimes, the language of image doesn't actually refer to us. It refers to Christ. We actually see that a few verses later in 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse four, where, it's, where Paul says, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then Colossians chapter one, verse 15, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. So what verse 18 is teaching is us is that those who are made in the image of God are becoming more and more like the one who is the image of God. God is working in us in such a way that we are becoming more like what we were always meant to be. We're made in the image of God, and the image of God is Christ. Jesus has always been the standard that God has used to shape our existence. The template that we were modeled after and transformation is the process of becoming more and more like him. We need transformation because sin has distorted the image of God in us. Listen, we are made in the image of God, but the image of God has been distorted in us because of sin. And that means that we are not right now what we were always meant to be. Our our human nature has been twisted and corrupted to the point that we no longer live and function in the way that we were meant to. There There are similarities, and there are faculties and abilities that we have that are distinctly human because we are made in the image of God, but we use those faculties and and abilities not to worship God, but to worship things. 
to turn to the false gods of materialism and possessions and success and personal beauty and the affirmation of other people. We're reminded that, our, that the image of God is distorted in us every time we, we speak words that hurt people. We're reminded that the image of God is distorted in us when we take all of our distinctly human capacities and we use them to serve ourselves rather than to serve others and to worship God. We are not what we were meant to be, but if you are a Christian, the hope of the Christian is that God is in the process of restoring his image in you by transforming you into the image of his son. He is in the process of sanctifying you and he will not stop until that work is done. Now, if you're not a Christian, you may be thinking, well, what, what about me? You know, I want transformation. You know, transformation is actually quite a popular concept in today's culture. You know, if you Google transformation conference, uh, I guarantee you, you'll come up with a whole bunch of hits of like secular institutions and motivational speakers trying to get you to transform yourself. And the goal there in those kinds of worldly depictions and concepts of transformation is that what you need is to upgrade yourself. What you need is to uh, increase your self-confidence, to transform yourself to do what you've always wanted to do. It's self-empowerment. It's a self-centered transformation. But the Bible's view of transformation is very different. We do not need transformation because we lack self-confidence. We need transformation because we are sinners. And we are being transformed not so that we could serve our own ends and agendas and goals and ambitions, but to serve God and to align our will and our desires and our lives more and more with what God wants. So as God works his sanctification in us, as the image of God is restored in us, we are becoming more like Jesus And we could summarize how we become more like Jesus in two ways. First, we love people more. We just love people more. We have compassion for the lost. We lay down our lives in service for others. We even love our enemies. You know, I think about often how, as Jesus hung on the cross, being executed for crimes that he never committed, being accused of doing things and saying things that he he never did, of being mocked and scorned by the very people he came to save. And he cries out as he's hanging there in excruciating pain, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's how I want to love people. And as God does his sanctifying work in our innermost being, we become the kinds of people who can say, Father, forgive them. Forgive the people who hate me. Forgive the people who have betrayed me. Forgive the people who have hurt me because they know not what they do. But as important as loving people may be, listen, as important as loving people may be, it is not the essence of becoming like Jesus. The essence of becoming like Jesus is actually growing in our love for God. The greatest commandment is not love your neighbor as yourself. It is like the greatest commandment, but it is not the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the commandment that comes first. 
And therefore, that is a commandment that we must devote most of our attention and energy to, the command to love God. Becoming like Jesus means, first and foremost, to love God and then to love people, not vice versa. And that difference matters. When we love God and then we love people as a result of our love for God, that's called worship. But when we love people and then we say that we love God, I don't think it's actually a love, loving God when you love people Ultimately, that's, that's what you love most in your life. When you love people and then you say that you love God because you love people, that's actually idolatry. That's idolatry. St. Augustine famously put it this way, and this is a wonderful quote to memorize. It's one that I think about often. He's saying this in his confessions in the context of a prayer. He says, he loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. When I... When my love for my wife does not lead to a greater love for God, that is idolatry. That is loving God too little. That is not loving my wife for God's sake. It is loving my wife for her sake. When I love my children in such a way that it doesn't lead to a greater love for God, I am loving God too little and loving my children too much. This is often true of us. None of us have succeeded in loving all things, all people for the sake of our love of the Father. But it was never true of Jesus. Jesus never loved his Father too little because everything he loved, he loved for his Father's sake and that includes us. You know, let us not forget when we, think, when we say that Jesus loves us because the Bible tells us so, Jesus came into the world because he loves us, that is true but not ultimately true. He ultimately came because he loves the Father. The Father sent the Son to die, and the Son willingly obeyed the Father because the Son delights to do the Father's will. He loves us for the sake of his Father. In his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves writes, at the heart of our transformation into the likeness of the Son is our sharing of his deep delight in the Father. And that is what transformation looks like. We need continual transformation because we're sinners. And as sinners, we love God too little. And we love other things that are not God too much. But as we become more and more like Jesus, we inherit his love for his father. A love that is pure and rich and deep. A love that is limitless and uncompromised by competing loves. And when we begin to love the father like Jesus loves then we begin to love others in the way that we were always meant to, even loving our enemies. Now, Paul, Paul describes this love as being glorious in verse 18. We're being transformed into the same de- image from one degree of glory to another. As we grow in love, we grow in glory. Our lives reflect the glory of God more and more fully because as we grow in love, we are becoming more and more like Jesus, the glorious one. We need transformation. We need to become more like Christ. But how do we do that? What what are the means that God has ordained for us to be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another? Well, that's 
The answer is found in the rest of our verse and the rest of our three-word summary. Transformation through revelation. Through revelation. The key word here in verse 18 that tells us how to be transformed into becoming more like Jesus is the word here, beholding. Beholding the glory of the Lord. This verb, again, notice it's not past tense. It's not, we have beholden or beholded. I'm not sure what the past tense of behold is. Probably behold, beheld, beheld, thank you. Any of those who are much more learned in old English. Beheld, it doesn't say beheld, it's beholding. It is present tense because it's something that is continually done. Just as we are being transformed, we are beholding the glory of the Lord. Beholding Jesus continually is what leads to continually becoming like Jesus. Now, this is a radical idea. It's in the verse, clearly, but let us, let us not miss how radical it is because it tells us that what we see shapes who we become. What we see shapes who we become. This isn't the only place in the Bible that teaches this. In Luke chapter 11, as an example, Jesus says, your eye, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. We are more influenced by what goes into our eyes than we realize. If we're always looking at the world, looking at what the world offers us in our careers and in our bank accounts and our reputations, we're gonna become worldly people. If we're always looking at ourselves in the reflection in the mirror or in how we see people perceiving us, we're gonna become self-centered people. But if we're looking at Jesus, if we cast our gaze upon him above all else, we're gonna become more and more like him in the beauty, glory, and perfection of his character. But you may rightly ask, well, how do we see Jesus when he's not physically with us? That's a good question. Hope you're asking it. These are the kinds of questions we're meant to ask as we study the text. And the answers are found in the text. We, we, we look at Jesus through the eyes of faith, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus through the eyes of our faith through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You notice at the end of verse 18, it says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You know, in Ephesians chapter one, Paul prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. The eyes of our heart. There is a way of seeing with our hearts. And it is the Spirit who, who enlightens our hearts so that we can see Jesus by faith. The Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus and to be transformed by him as we walk by faith and not by sight. The Spirit enables us to see Jesus by faith when we hear him preached, when we sing his praises, and when we read about him in his word. Now there is so much more in this verse about seeing, beholding Jesus. I'm gonna to try to explore the depths of this verse by trying to unpack what this little kind of nuanced, somewhat confusing term means when, when Paul says, and we all with unveiled face. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. What, is, what does that mean? 
Well, as you read the earlier context in chapter three, you'll see that the imagery that Paul is drawing from is, is from Moses when he would appear before God in Exodus chapter 34, speaking to God. He would then depart from Mount Sinai and come down to God's people with God's glory shining on his face. And the people uh, of Israel who witnessed this, they were afraid. They were terrified. And so Moses would put a veil over his face that he would then remove when he appeared before God once again. This became a pattern. He would go in to speak with God. He would remove the veil. And we return to the people. He would put the veil back on. So when Paul writes in verse 18 that we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. He's saying, he's saying this first and foremost. He's saying Christians get to enjoy the same personal relationship with God that Moses enjoyed in the Old Testament. It, you know, let's, let's not miss this obvious, beautiful point. In, in Exodus, Moses was the only one who is entitled to appear before God on the top of Mount Sinai, speaking to him face to face as with a friend. No one else had this privilege. There were one-offs, you know, I think there was a moment where the elders went up and you know, Aaron went up, but, but the only one who had this regular, distinct privilege was Moses. Not Aaron, not his assistant Joshua, only Moses. Moses was the only mediator between God and his people. If the people wanted to behold God, they had to go through Moses. When Paul says here in verse 18, we all, with unveiled face, are beholding the glory of the Lord, He's saying that Christians get to enjoy the same personal relationship with God, speaking to him face to face as with a friend, as Moses did. We are given the same unspeakable privilege of speaking to God as one speaks to a friend because we do not need an earthly mediator anymore. We don't need a Moses to appear on our behalf. We have a spiritual heavenly mediator, Christ Jesus himself, who has torn the veil and given us access to appear before God without fear of condemnation or judgment. We have instant access to the God of glory himself. And it is this fellowship, this relationship, this personal beholding that transforms us and makes us more like Jesus. There are at least two other layers to this phrase, veiled face, unveiled face. I'm trying to unpack it for us. In verses 12 and 13, Paul explains why Moses put the veil on his face. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words, Paul is telling us that one of the reasons why Moses put the veil on his face was because he was embarrassed. He was embarrassed that this glory that they were all awed by and shocked by, it was actually fading. It wasn't a permanent glory. He wasn't being transformed. But that is not the case with us. The glory that shines on our faces as we fellowship with God, it is not a temporary glory. It is not one that fades to our shame and embarrassment. It is one that stays with us. There is no need for us to veil our faces like Moses because the glory that shines on us never fades. It is transforming us permanently into the glory 
of Jesus Christ. It is a permanent glory that comes from permanent transformation into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that is why verse 12 says, we are very bold. We are very bold as we approach the throne of God because not only is Christ our mediator, Christ is our transformer. And he is changing us into his likeness in a way that will never diminish or fade. Now, the last part of what it means to behold the Lord with an unveiled face is found in verses 14 and 15, where Paul again takes this imagery of Moses' veil and uses it as a symbol of our sinful depravity. He writes, but their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So now he's, he's, he's moving from the veil over the face to the veil over the heart. And the veil over the heart is making a statement about human nature. For those who have grown up in the language of five-point Calvinism, he's talking about total depravity. He's saying that left to ourselves, we could never see the glory of God and be transformed by it. Our hearts are so darkened that we are unable to come to God ourselves. And we are unable to see his glory and be transformed by it. There is a veil on our hearts that keeps us from being sanctified and changed. But then he says in verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. My friends, this is what happens when anyone becomes a Christian. We turn to the Lord in repentance and faith, turning away from sin, turning towards the Lord, again, because the Lord is drawing us. And as we do that, when we do that, God lifts the veil over our hearts that kept us from seeing his glory. We need Christ to be revealed to us. This is why we talk about transformation through revelation. It's not just transformation through seeing. That that's, that's emphasis is on our action. It's revelation because God is revealing Christ to us. We need Christ to be revealed to us by re- removing the, the veil on our hearts away, that the veil that keeps us from seeing him as he truly is. But when we turn to the Lord, through the work of the Spirit, the veil is removed. And then we can approach the Lord and see him as we had never seen him before. Christ is revealed. And you can see him with an unveiled face and an unveiled heart, beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That is how sanctification works. This is how Christ is revealed and imprints his life into our lives. It is transformation through revelation. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to know that there is a veil over your heart so that you cannot see what the Christian sees. I wonder if you've had moments where you've seen glimpses of glory when during the singing of, of, of Christ's worship, your heart has been moved, but then you go home and you forget as if it ever happened. Or you have moments when the Bible seems to make sense as it's being preached and taught and read, and you say, I believe that, I think, but then you go home and it's as if it had never happened and you continue to live the same way as you were living before. Well, that's because you have a veil on your heart and you need that veil removed. Don't be content with getting little glimpses of glory. Turn to the Lord and have the veil over your heart removed. 
so that when you hear Christians sing about Christ, or when you hear a pastor preach about Christ, you wouldn't just hear words and ideas and be a dispassionate observer. You would participate in the worship of God through Christ and be transformed into his likeness. Now before we conclude, we need to ask one more question of our text today. What are we to look at when we behold the glory of the Lord? We need to look at Jesus, but what are we looking at about Jesus? You know, Moses, it was easy for him. All he had to do was climb Mount Sinai and there was God in the glory of his presence and he was transformed. But, but how do we do that? What are we to look at? Or for that, we need to turn to two verses in chapter four. In verse six of chapter four, Paul says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Listen, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's glory is supremely manifested in the person of his son. Christ is the revelation of the glory of his father. That's what he is saying there in verse six. Now notice what he says then in verse four. Paul says, he says some other things, but I just wanna focus on this part in verse four. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In other words, God reveals his glory through the glory of his son. And the glory of the son is revealed in the glory of the cross. It's in the glory of Christ, in the glory of the cross, that we see the glory of God. And that means that transformation comes as we behold the gospel. We need to behold the gospel because it is in the gospel that we see in perfect expression the glory of God himself. And that is why, my friends, we need to be a gospel-centered church. It's the only way that we can be transformed, the only way that we can be revealing Christ. We will not be transformed if we are a morality-centered church. We will not be transformed if we are a community-centered church. We will not be transformed if we are an outreach-centered church. We will only be transformed to the extent that we are a gospel-centered church, a church that beholds the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross to die for our sins. You know, John Calvin said this, in the cross of Christ, as in a magnificent theater, the inestimable the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. In all the creatures, the glory of God shines, but nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross. So which theater are we, are we going to to behold the glory of God? Is it the theater of creation? That's a, that's a pretty good theater, but it's not sufficient. We need to go to the theater of the cross to see God on display that we may behold and be transformed. We are revealing Christ. That is the kind of church that we want to be, a church full of people who are showing the world what Jesus is like by becoming more like him. But in order to do that, we need to be serious about the gospel. The gospel is the foundation of our justification and it is the foundation of our sanctification. If we are truly to be sanctified, if we are truly to be transformed in our inner being so that other people see transformation in our lives, we need to center our lives on the gospel. 
And that means far more than just talking about the gospel, okay? We can talk about the gospel a lot without being a gospel-centered church. Being a gospel-centered church means not only talking about it, understanding it, studying it, it means enjoying it, savoring it, beholding it. You know, there is a world of difference between going outside on a, uh, in the evening when the sky is clear, there are no clouds, looking up and noticing that there are stars in the sky and saying, oh, that's nice, and then continuing on your way. And there's, the, there's a difference between that and, and staring at this ocean of tiny lights above you and standing in awe and wonder. That's the difference between seeing and beholding, noticing and enjoying. We, we, we need to take our time to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ displayed in the gospel in order to be transformed. And so when you're reading your Bible at home, you know, whether you are in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, it doesn't matter, all the scriptures point to Jesus, we need to look for Jesus. But when we have found him, let's not just be satisfied as if we had just solved a puzzle, you know, as if we had found Waldo in the, the hidden mass of, of confusion, like, oh, there he is, ha-ha, you know, flip to the next page, I'm gonna go on to the next puzzle. This is not an intellectual exercise. This is not for our entertainment. It is for our enjoyment. So when you have found Jesus, savor him. Taste his goodness, linger there at the cross. Or when we are Singing, you know, Pastor Tim said this to us so well a couple weeks ago. When we are singing, don't, don't let that be a passive exercise. It's like, oh, wow, I like this song. I've heard this before. I grew up singing this song. I'm gonna sing a little bit more heartily. No, let the, let the words and the truths lead your heart to Christ that you may behold him and worship him and be transformed by him. When you're hearing the sermon preached, look for Christ but then when you hear him, don't just check off a box and say, okay, you know, I'm the orthodoxy doctrine police. He's, he's doing okay. No, enjoy Christ. Linger there, behold him and be transformed by him. If we do, if we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ on the cross, then the spirit will do the wonderful work of transforming us into the image of our savior. We are gonna be talking about the spirit next Sunday as we address our third verse associated with the third part of our mission statement. But for now, let us pray that Christ would be revealed to us and Christ would be revealed through us for the glory of God and for the joy of his people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us more like Jesus in his love for people and in his love for you. Make us more like Jesus by giving us more of Jesus. That we might enter daily the magnificent theater of your glory. Change us, Father, and make us a church that is revealing your glorious Son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.